Our sermon comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through verse 29. And I'll read that out for us. Hear God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Amen. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 12. We're looking at this morning at that passage that Pastor Ben has just read out, Hebrews 12 and verses 18 through to 29 as we continue our series in the book of Hebrews and uh, look uh, on towards Advent as well. In summary this morning, uh, the message uh, from this passage is as follows. The church is better, therefore we had better stick with the church. And so, this passage is considering church, why it is important, what kind of church we should be, and therefore why we should commit ourselves to that sort of church. Throughout this letter, uh, the author of Hebrews has been making a comparison. It's a comparison between things which are good and that which is better, a comparison between uh, lesser to greater. And he is now, as he comes towards the end of his letter, painting a picture of the future that is a better future, a future that uh, the Hebrew Christians are called to be a part of as they stick with 
the gospel church, the New Testament church. So the Hebrew Christians, this is the traditional interpretation of the book of Hebrews, and I think it's right, uh, were being tempted to go back to Judaism under pressure of persecution that would come in those days to those who followed Jesus. They had been tempted to go back to Judaism, to reject Jesus, to stick with their heritage as Jewish people, to still worship God, to have all the paraphernalia that came with the Old Testament religion of the temple and the priests and the sacrifices and all that, and escape persecution. And the author of Hebrews is writing to these Hebrew Christians and calling them, no, you must not go back, you must stay with Jesus. And as he comes towards the end of this letter, he's calling to focus on the future, the city that is to come, and to seek that city, and saying that, no, you must not go back to Judaism, you must stay with Jesus, stay with the New Testament church now in this passage this morning, with the gospel church. And so he's saying that this church, this gospel church, is a better gathering, we'll see that's the part of the definition of what church is, it's a gathering, a better gathering, and therefore you must stick uh, with, uh, with the church. Now this whole theme is important today for a number of different reasons, here are a few. First of all, there are a sizable group of individuals today who say they're spiritual but not religious. It's a phrase that people use and by saying they're spiritual but not religious, people seem to mean that they want Jesus, they want the Bible, uh, they want spiritual things but they don't want the church. And therefore, this passage is calling us to stick to the church is an important one for us to consider. Our temptation today is not to go back to Judaism. Our temptation today is to go on to something else, to leave behind the church. And this passage that calls us to stick with the church, we better stick with the church because it's a better gathering, is therefore important for us to think through that phrase, spiritual but not religious. It's, it's speaking against that, saying, no, in order to be a real follower of Jesus, you need to be a part of the church. Why? how this passage is going to address that, so it's important. In addition, there are a number of people today, I think it's a not insignificant number of people, how large it is, who knows, but all the data and the anecdotal evidence would suggest that it's a significant group of people today who have been hurt by church. I suppose that was always the case. Every time you have a community gathering, there's always opportunity for offense or difficulty, bitterness and all the rest. But there seems to be a particularly uh, significant, at least not insignificant, number of people today who are feeling hurt by church. And we must be honest and say that even especially within this region of the country, within Chicagoland, there are a number of people who have felt hurt by large, prominent churches in the area, and therefore, perhaps, they are saying, I want to be spiritual but not religious. I'm not sure I can get back into church. I'm not sure I can commit myself to church. And so as we think about church, this better church, this better gathering, that we better stick with it, we need to address that too. What do you say to someone who's been hurt by church? How do you help them get back into church? Perhaps that's you. When I was hospitalized recently, one of the upsides of it was having a number of medical professionals come into the room where I was and say that they were going to pray for me. It's a wonderful thing. A number of different people did that. They'd say, I'd heard you preaching, whether through podcasts or on the radio or in person or through streaming or something like that. And they come in and they pray with me. And as I talk to some of these people about Jesus and about 
church, I discovered that for some of them, not for all of them, some of them were very committed here to this church. Uh, medical professionals are working at CDH, a uh, number of them uh, are very committed to this church. But for some of them, as I talked to them about Jesus and about God, it became apparent that they'd been hurt by church, that they, they believed in, they were spiritual but not religious. They believed in Jesus, but they weren't sure what to do with the church. And so here the author of Hebrews is saying, look, this gathering is important. You better stick with it. Well, how do we help those who've been hurt by church? And so we need to address that. But most importantly of all, I think, this passage has in it an ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a study of church. That's what it means. And it has an ecclesiology that elevates church and the importance of the gathering of the church for the individual Christian. And that is of great importance today because ecclesiology, what church is, how you do church, what sort of thing is a gathering, what kind of church should I be a part of, do I need to be a part of church, is a confusion today for many people. And again, this passage, it won't answer all the ecclesiological questions that people have, but it will answer some of them and answers the substance of them. So again, it's an important, I want you to be listening because this matters. It matters for those you know who are, say they're spiritual but not religious. It matters for those you know, and it may be you who've been hurt by church, and it matters because there's a grand confusion about what church is today. And so we need to listen to it. So this passage is saying uh, the church is better, therefore we better stick with the church. How does it describe that? Well, he does it really by means of a story. And it's a story of two mountains. The first mountain is verses 18 to 21. He says this, for you have not come to what may be touched. Remember, it's a comparison. This is what you've not come to. So he's going to compare something that's good, but there's now something better. But you have not come to this For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, so this is a story of two mountains. Here's the first mountain. This is all about this mountain gathering. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So here's the first mountain. Something he's writing to these Hebrew Christians and saying, you haven't come to this. I'm going to compare now, in a moment, a better mountain. It's a story of two mountains. But this first mountain, you haven't come to. And that mountain, of course, is referencing the Old Testament mountain, the gathering of God's people at Sinai, where God gave his word, his law, to Moses, to the people. And that gathering, the original hearers would have realized, is the archetypal gathering of God's people in the Bible. So in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word that is used for the assembly of God's people around the mountain, when the law is given, the Ten Commandments, that assembly, the word used for it, is the same word that is used in the New Testament for church, ecclesia, from which we get ecclesiology, the study of church. So the Old Testament gathering of God's people around the mountain is the archetypal, paradigmatic gathering of God's people. It is the church, 
There, that, you want to know what church is? Think of that mountain. What happens to that mountain? God's people gather. That's what church is. It's a gathering. God's people gather. What do they do? They hear from God's word. And so church, in its essence, is the gathering of God's people around God's word. That's the archetype. That's the shape. That's the paradigm of what church is. There can be many other things that happen in church. But in its essence, it's a gathering of God's people around God's word. What do you need for there to be a church? First of all, you need God's people. Second, you need them to gather. If you're not gathered, it's not a church. That's what a church is. It's a gathering. You need God's people. They need to gather. What's the third thing you need? You need God's word to be proclaimed. So if you have God's people, but they're not gathered, it's not a church. If you have God's people, but they gather, but they don't deliver God's word, it's not a church. God, the church is God's people gathered around God's word. That's the framework. This first mountain, the archetypal, typical shape of what church is. But here's the amazing thing. You remember the author of Hebrews is calling these Hebrew Christians not to go back to Judaism, and he's saying, you haven't come to that. I've got something better for you. What is it that you have come to, this better church? Here it is, verse 22. But you have come to. Note, this is not about a future. I know the, the, the title for the series is A Better Future, and there's an element of this which is still to come, the city that is still to come, and this, this heavenly gathering, as you'll describe it, is finally fulfilled in the future when we die and go to be with Jesus, or when Jesus returns, there's a new heaven and a new earth. That final gathering is the fulfillment of this, but still, this is a present reality, a present reality that is fulfilled in the future. For he says, but you have come to. This is something Christians have come to. What is it? It's the story of two mountains. So here's the second mountain, the better gathering. But you have come to Mount Zion. So not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. You've come to Mount Zion. And what is that? And to the city of the living God. So what is the city of God? It's this phrase that is sometimes used with all sorts of different rhetorical resonance, sometimes used in nationalistic terms or even ethnic terms. But the city of the living God is the gathering of God's people around Mount Zion. This is what the Bible teaches. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is not a nationalistic gathering. This is the gathering of God's people. That's the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. This is something you have come to. We think of angels as something we'll be a part of when we die and go to be with Jesus. But here there's a gathering. You have come to it, Mount Zion. And in this gathering at Mount Zion, there are angels in festal gathering. So though we cannot see them, the Bible here is teaching that when we gather as God's people around God's word, this better gathering that is the gathering around the gospel, as we'll see in the moment, there is a celebration that is taking place in heaven, that the angels have a festival. There's a festivity to it. They're celebrating when we gather. 
Isn't that amazing? Angels are cheering us on. Say, yes, college church, you gathered. That's amazing. And we're with you. It's a festal gathering of innumerable angels. And to the assembly, so this is a gathering, it's an assembly. What is church? It's God's people gathered around God's words. We'll see the better gatherings of gospel in a moment. The assembly, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's his way of describing that if you're a real Christian, your citizenship, so this is the future part, your citizenship is enrolled in heaven. You're a part of the city that is to come. So we've gathered now in the church around Mount Zion. It's final fulfillment is to come, and our citizenship is enrolled in heaven when that final fulfillment happens. And in this gathering, we've come to God. When we gather as God's people around the gospel, we gather in the presence of God. It doesn't happen when God's people don't gather. This particularly intense presence of God. Jesus said, when two or three are gathered together, there I am among them. When we gather as God's people, there's a specially intense presence of God. It doesn't happen virtually. It doesn't happen when we're scattered God's people do scatter and go to work and serve their families. That's an important part of Christian living. But when the church happens, church is a gathering. It doesn't happen when we don't gather. When the church happens, there's an especially intense presence of God. We've come to God. Who? The judge. The judge of all. Hold that phrase. We'll come back to it in a moment. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Here the author of Hebrews is talking about how the gospel makes us righteous. How does that happen? Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. This is in the New Testament church. There's a new covenant. There's this better gathering and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better, that's where I get the phrase better from this better church, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Abel in the Old Testament was murdered by Cain. That's, that's not a, a good result. Jesus comes and he's killed, but his death is a deliberate act of God sacrificing his blood, Jesus' blood, for us. It speaks a better word so that we might now be righteous, so that when we gather with God, the judge, through Jesus, through his blood, by faith, we're declared righteous, and now we can gather with a festal gathering, festal celebration in this gathering together. So there's two mountains, a tale of two mountains, and you haven't come to Mount Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, before we move on, there's one final point before we start applying this I need to make from the text. But before we move on to that final point, before we start applying it, this better church that means we had better stick with it, you need to not misunderstand me. So what I'm not saying, and I can just predict emails if I don't underline this like physically, I'm not saying, what we're not saying here is the Old Testament is unimportant and that Christians shouldn't read the Old Testament. No, the, the Old Testament was the Bible of the New Testament Christians. 
When you read the Old Testament, you're reading the Scriptures that Jesus taught point to him. The author of Hebrews is not saying, don't read the Old Testament. What he's saying is, that gathering at Mount Sinai is fulfilled in this Mount Zion gathering, the new covenant. There is a new thing that takes place when Jesus arrives. He says it, new covenant, better word. It's fulfilled. It's, it, there's a continuity there's a gospel in the Old Testament. You're saved by faith in the Old Testament. He's described that already in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, by faith, by faith. It's not like in the Old Testament it's by works and the New Testament it's by grace. Wrong. No. By faith always. By grace always. But that message of the Old Testament, they're looking forward to Christ and we now, with the Scriptures on the other side of the cross, look back to the cross and forward to His return. So we're at a different point in salvation history. And therefore, it's now a better gathering, a fulfilled gathering. That's what He's saying. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, not saying, don't read the Bible, the, the Old Testament part of the Bible. It's not, of course it's important. It's fulfilled in Christ, this New Testament, New Covenant gathering, which is around the gospel. So God's people gathered around God's word. That's the framework, the shape of what a gathering is all the way back to Sinai. Now it's a gathering fulfilled in the gospel, the better word, Jesus, as we're now at this point in salvation history, on the other side of the cross, we understand how all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were fulfilled. We can see them now, and we understand that they point to Jesus. And so we gather around that, as we say as a church. Our vision is proclaiming the gospel. That's everything we do. It's all about that, proclaiming the gospel, because we are God's people gathered around God's gospel. Now, there's one other point I need to make before we apply this, and that is there's a point of continuity that is emphasized around the single word fire. So look with me at verse 18. For you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire. That's the Mount Sinai thing, okay? But then verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I've never noticed that point of connection this passage before the number of times I've studied it I've none of those it but what he's saying is which is amazing what he's saying is that the the physical gathering Mount Sinai was awesome there was a literal blazing fire amazing I think well you should go back to that's extraordinary that 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 Judaistic heritage, but he's saying now, because we're now at this point in salvation history, on the other side of the cross, actually when we gather, we don't come here and we see like a mountain like blazing with fire. We don't see that. But when we gather, we gather in a, with God's presence in an especially intense way, and our God is a consuming fire. So this gathering, spiritually, is massively more awesome than, you know, you see those, those movies, the Old Testament, I think, was it Charlton Heston who was Moses? I think it was, was it? And you say, well, that was amazing, we should have been there. What the New Testament author is saying, that is nothing compared to going to church on Sunday morning at college church. Nothing! Seriously, that's what he's saying. 
If you only had eyes to see, there are innumerable angels in festal gathering here. And there's a fire of the very reality of God himself here. Why go back to Judaism? You've got far better church here. That's what he's saying. Okay, so if that's the case, therefore you better stick with it. How do we do that? Well, having got a little loud, I apologize. I must be fitting more better. I try not to shout too much. It must be the, must be the Celtic blood in me, not the English blood. Um, how do we do this? Here are three ways. First of all, the sprinkled blood. Verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now listen, I've been reflecting on my preaching over the last, you know, my patterns, my emphases of preaching uh, over the last couple of decades or so that I've been preaching. And what I've come to the conclusion is I've looked at this text, and this is something I think I need to change as a preacher. I think I have underemphasized the blood. I've certainly preached about the cross a lot. And as you know, I always preach about Jesus and the gospel. So I'm not saying like I've been preaching heresy or something. No, I believe fully and completely I'm preaching the gospel. But I think I've underemphasized the blood. There's an old preacher, and I can't remember the right person to attribute this quotation to, but if in doubt and you're not sure who to attribute a quotation to, in Christian circles, always attribute it to Charles Spurgeon because you're probably going to be right. Anyway, this old preacher said, preach the blood, that's where the power is. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Oh, other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You trust in that, you are white as snow. And because of that, he says, Listen. Verse 25 See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. It's a little awkward as a preacher to say this, but I'm almost sure what he's talking about is, is the preaching of a sermon. This, this letter is a sermon in letter form. It's just one long sermon. And so when he comes towards the end and he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, he's talking about Jesus and the gospel, the blood that we've just emphasized. He's talking about the message, not the preacher, obviously. But he has in mind listening to the sermon. I think we're pretty good at that at Cottage Church. I think we tend to listen pretty well But in this festal gathering, 
if it's a gathering of God's people around the gospel where God's word is delivered, we better listen and follow and obey what God says. And then finally, in terms of putting this into practice, uh, not only the, uh, the blood and not only the listen, also worship. Verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, worship <laughs> defines some ecclesiology for us this morning. God's people gathered around God's word. God's people gathered around the proclamation of the gospel, proclaim the gospel. That's why we talk about it. And in that also there's worship. Worship. You know, people sometimes say to me, I'm a Christian, but I don't feel like I need to go to worship. I need to go to church. When I hear that, I just have to be honest because of this text. In my mind, pastorally, I'm thinking, I'm not sure whether that person is a Christian. I'm not sure whether they're saved. I'm not sure whether I'll see them in heaven. To say that we are a Christian and don't need to gather with God's people and worship is as contradictory as saying that we are married, but we don't have a spouse. It's a, it's a contradiction in terms. Or to use another analogy... It's as contradictory as saying that we are alive, but we don't have a heartbeat. Now, granted, there are some people who are alive whose heart is not beating on their own. They're, they're plugged up to a machine, and they're not yet brain stem dead. They're still alive. So it's possible for a season to be not connected to a local church in regular worship and still be spiritually alive, but it is as contradictory as saying that someone is alive but not have a heartbeat. The, the, the gathered worship for a Christian, that's our heartbeat. It is the pulse. Worship is the pulse of a Christian every, at least once a week. We gather in worship like a heart beating. And if someone says to me, you know, I don't feel like I need to, I wonder whether their heart is beating. Because our God is a consuming fire. What does he mean by, it's not like, <laughs> you probably won't see a t-shirt selling that. You know, everyone says God is love. He says our God is a consuming fire. What does he mean by that? He means it's a way of, describing the holiness of God. He said already, I said we come back to all this at the end, that when we gather into the presence of God, we're gathering with God as the judge and Jesus, Jesus whose blood speaks a better word, but, but God is judge. He's cons a consuming fire. And if we, 
If we don't come to God through Jesus, through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, through the blood, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If we don't come that way, our God is a consuming fire. It's, it's a funny, funny, it's an ironic shift of terms today that we think of worship in consumeristic terms when biblically the consumer of worship is God. Our question should not be, after we come out of Cottage Church, what did I get out of it? What did I learn? What did I receive? Our question should be, was God honored? For our God is a consuming fire. And that means that we need to come to Him this morning to receive the blood of Jesus. Otherwise, this gathering this morning will be terrifying to you because I'm talking about the holiness of God, and that, that, will be, that should be scary to you. Because there will be another moment to come when the consuming fire that is God, there will no longer be an offer of the blood of Jesus. That offer is time-stamped. It's on offer now. But one day when you die or when Jesus returns or when you harden your heart so much you no longer are ready to listen to it, that offer will not be good. And all that will be left is God as a consuming fire. And so this text is appealing us. It's a better, it's a better gathering. It's a better church. We, we, we better make the most of it. And part of making the most of it is to right now what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus right now to receive that blood. Listen, I know it's Advent. We've got all the flowers up and everything like that. It's beautiful. The tree and the candles. I know it's Advent. This, this text reminds me a little bit of one of the most unusual Christmas cards I ever got from a friend of mine. He, he drew on the front of the Christmas card, he hand drew, draw a... a, a um, uh, a depiction of a part of uh, a story from the Gospels, one of the encounters that Jesus had when they invited, they asked him what to do about the Tower of Siloam. The Tower of Siloam was a tower famously in Jesus' time that had fallen down and killed a number of people. And so on the front of this Christmas card, this friend of mine had hand-drawn the Tower of Siloam, collapsed with a bunch of dead bodies underneath and limbs and various various kind of broken, disembodied, kind of broken up bodies and, and blood everywhere on this Christmas card. Um, so I thought this is going to be interesting. I never had a Christmas card like this before. So I opened up the Christmas card. And in the Christmas card, he quoted from the lips of Jesus. Jesus, when he was asked this question, said, do you think there are any worse sinners than you, those who are being killed by the Tower of Siloam, those who suffer this uh, disaster or that disaster today? Do you think there are any worse sinners than you? No, but unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, God's suffering is God's megaphone to a deaf world, as Jesus 
as C.S. Lewis said, describing Jesus' teaching there in the Tower of Siloam. And, and so in the, he got this, the front of the Christmas card as this picture of the Tower of Siloam with kind of blood and bodies broken underneath it and all this, a Christmas card. And then inside he quoted from the lips of Jesus, Jesus saying, unless you repent, you too will perish. It's an interesting Christmas card to get. My eyes scanned down. There was a large space between the quotation, unless you repent, you too will perish. And then underneath that, he'd written in very prominent letters with exclamation marks afterwards, Merry Christmas! (laughs) So as I think of closing this text with our God is a consuming fire on the first day of Advent, I think of that that, uh, Christmas card. And yet, of course... While the reason why we're doing this is because we're a church that believes in preaching expositionally through the Bible, because church is God's people gathering around, gathered around God's Word. Though, of course, this is the first day of Advent, and though, of course, Advent is about the celebration of Jesus' first coming as a baby, it is also about an expectation of His second coming. And our God is a consuming fire. He is holy. And He is a judge. And in this heavenly gathering, with this heavenly word, I'm offering to you the one and only remedy. The blood of Jesus. Our Lord God, we do uh, come to you then this morning in this gathering. And we pray, Lord, that you would sprinkle your blood upon every single person here, that we might stand before you with the spirits of righteous, made perfect, declared righteous, that we might be washed clean. We pray, Lord, that we would grasp a vision for church and for this church, proclaiming the gospel we gather around your word, your gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.